Lucas on Life. Well, hello and welcome to Lucas on Life. It's a gift that costs nothing except a little thoughtfulness and time. It can change a life, this gift. Certainly that's my experience. And when we give this gift, we become a little more like God because it's a gift that he gives all the time. The gift I'm talking about is encouragement. It can brighten your day, lift your spirits, give you a greater sense of resolve. Lucas on Life on Premier Christian Radio, talking about encouragement. Thanks so much for joining me tonight. I rather hope you'll be encouraged as you do. I've said it before, but we Brits are rather good at being negative. There are times when I fly into Heathrow and I feel like a big wet blanket of pessimism has been dropped upon me from a great height as I walk into the arrivals area. Perhaps it's our dark satanic weather. A nation with a summer that doesn't often last more than 45 minutes or so has a right to be a bit glum sometimes. A leading politician recently bewailed what she calls the great British disease of negativity. She's right. Our negativity is not only evidenced in our turn of phrase, we're never doing well, rather, we're not too bad, or we can't complain, but also in the bizarre reality that we seem to want people to not succeed. Some of us celebrate the underdog and savage the achiever. We're nervous and suspicious of the successful. Is it just jealousy thinly veiled? And then there's the way that we greet or don't greet each other. We can be fairly gifted in the art of totally ignoring strangers, feeling that someone who actually speaks to us without the preface of a formal introduction is at best somewhat forward and therefore rather iffy. At worst, this verbose person may well be a roving pervert. Pity the bored passenger who tries to kickstart a conversation in a railway carriage. He is viewed with the suspicion normally reserved for an escaped felon. This is not just a secular problem. I've experimented with saying hello to strangers at a number of Christian conferences. I occasionally like to catch people's eyes and then offer a warm good morning. The response or lack of it can be astounding. Time after time, people respond by giving me a away from me, you grubby deviant look, or they just ignore me altogether, which of course is their right, but isn't it a little strange? A couple of times, having been totally stared down and coldly ignored, I wander on and am tempted to say quite loudly, all right then, not good morning. Negativity can turn you into a hunter who is always looking out for a prize problem. I discover Christians who are constantly on the lookout for something to be upset about in their churches. Life for them is a long, tiresome safari in dogged pursuit of the next irritation. They attend church meetings subconsciously hoping and almost praying that there will be something that will displease them and trigger yet another opportunity for a good old gripe. So where does this virus of negativity come from? Is it a leftover from a World War II generation that were bombed into believing that there might not be a horizon beyond their horror, they certainly had every reason to lose hope as they cowered in underground stations during the Blitz and dared not expect too much. Have we, a younger, unblooded generation, embraced some of their stoicism without ever having experienced the horrendous pressures that they faced every day? One antidote for the negative bug is encouragement and affirmation. A friend of mine has, in my opinion, the greatest gift of encouragement I've ever seen. He's the type of chap who would be great in a crisis. If you were unfortunate enough to get your feet run over by a truck, not only would he drive you to the hospital, 
but he'd also offer to buy your slippers. He can always be relied upon to come up with a jaunty comment to help bring a little sunshine to an otherwise dingy day. We were out playing golf together recently. Now, my golf is totally appalling and should probably be videoed for a look at this useless twit before he took this golf training kind of product. I teed off and promptly drove the ball right into a lake. I was not happy and was tempted to mutter an expletive like, oh dear, when my friend jumped in with a smile as big as the bunker that I'd narrowly missed on my way to the water feature. Great shot, Jeff, he exuded, slapping me on the back. Now I know that you are a superficial, cheesy type person who says absolutely nothing of substance or authenticity, I cried, or something like that. How could he congratulate me on such a dreadful shot, a terrible performance? I reminded him of the facts of the matter. Look, I just hit the ball straight into the water, I said. You did indeed, Jeff, he smiled. But Jeff, you just hit the ball. Sad as I am to admit that connecting club to ball constitutes a golfing triumph for me, he was right. In that sense, it was a great shot, because it was a shot, no matter its ultimate wet resting place. So come on, let's build churches that are truly county-cultural, and not just because some of us dance to unaccompanied acoustic guitars. Let's raise our glasses in gratitude, make affirmation and gratitude our common currency, and do our best to try to catch someone doing something right. That way, as we encourage, we'll represent Jesus better. After all, he's the one who promises to cut the ribbon of eternity by greeting his faithful ones, not with a could-have-done-better list, but a simple two-word welcome. Well done. Encouragement. That's our theme here on Lucas on Life. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Gemma knew that the poor woman only had a few minutes of life left. Doris, a thin elderly lady, had been rushed into the accident emergency section in the middle of the night. The duty doctor phoned the ward where Gemma was charge nurse. Knowing that the end was very near, he wanted to spare Doris the indignity of dying on a hospital trolley. He wanted her to breathe her last in the warm comfort of a bed. Her family gathered around her, but death was stalking Doris. She was deeply comatose, chain-stoking, her vitals closing down. At the most, the doctor said, he thought she had 20 minutes to live. Make her comfortable, please, Gemma. The porter willed Doris into a side room and a gaggle of distraught family members followed on. Gemma and the porter carefully lifted Doris into the bed. Gemma puffed the pillow beneath her head and spoke gently to the tearful family. Hold her hand. Whisper quietly if you'd like. It won't be long now. Gemma stepped out of the room to allow them some privacy. And that's when everything went so terribly wrong. Gemma sat quietly outside the room when another nurse arrived and began a conversation that led to uproar. She told Gemma how she'd got hopelessly lost driving to a job interview that day. Looking for a hospital, she'd ended up in a local park and then finally managed to drive her car right onto a bowling green in the middle of a game. The more the story unfolded, the more Gemma laughed and what began as a stifled giggle turned into a deep, raucous belly laugh. Not one normally given to laughing out loud, Gemma howled for quite some minutes, the sound of it echoing down the dark corridor. But then Nurse Gemma realised that behind the thin plasterboard wall, just a few feet away, 
A lady was dying. Relatives were weeping, and her laughter was quite out of place. She dried her eyes and steeled herself to apologise to the family for her inappropriate, unprofessional behaviour. Opening the door, she saw Doris sitting up in bed, laughing. She'd removed her oxygen mask and was now giggling at her stunned relatives. "'Are you all right?' asked Gemma, amazed. "'Well, dear,' said Doris, her eyes sparkling, "'I heard the sound of beautiful laughter, and I wanted to join in. "'The laughter was so lovely, so I laughed along, and I woke up, and here I am. "'Are you the one with the lovely laugh?' The delightful conversation that followed revealed that both Gemma and Doris are Christians. Gemma didn't lose her job and Doris didn't lose her life. The next day, the doctors pronounced her perfectly fit enough to go home. She laughed her way back into life. And all of that happened 13 years ago. I've shared that story around the world in preaching and in print, and I thought that that was the end of it until recently. But there is a postscript to Gemma and Doris's story. You see, four decades ago, I was in Bible college with Graham and Linda, Gemma's parents. The last time I heard from them or Gemma directly was over a decade ago. But then, just a few days ago, Linda posted a one-line encouraging comment on my Facebook page. Suddenly, I felt prompted to ask how their daughter was doing during these days of coronavirus-induced challenge. I felt nudged to make contact with Gemma to let her know that I was praying for her, and the thought, the suggestion that I should contact her to encourage her, persisted. But then I got distracted, and I didn't do it. I tend to be spiritually slow. And then, the next day, out of the blue an email arrived from Colorado. A lady had heard that Doris and Gemma story and so identified with it that she had named her daughter Gemma and wanted to hear the story again for inclusion in a baby book. What are the chances of all this happening so concurrently after 13 long years? All of that unfolding in, what, 48 hours? I phoned Gemma responsible now for training fellow nurses to deal with COVID-19. The scenes at her hospital have been harrowing. And just a few days ago, she'd asked God, how will I be remembered? Am I making a difference in the world? How thrilled she was to hear of a baby in America named Gemma. And there was a final joy, because connecting with Gemma's parents, I discovered that they both have had the COVID virus. Linda was recently discharged from hospital and very narrowly escaped death. Understandably, they've been anxious for their daughter's health and well-being because she's working on the front line. So they too were so encouraged. Last year, what a privilege it was to stand on our doorsteps banging drums and blowing whistles and clapping for NHS heroes and all those involved in social care. We got together to encourage. But the developments around Doris and Gemma's story have shown me again that when we were cheering them on, we perhaps were accompanied by a few pot-bashing angels and God, the encourager, was joining in with the applause too. We're talking about encouragement. The man fiddled with his impossibly tight tie. 
His Sunday morning church attire was slowly strangling him, and for a long moment he looked silent and then at last spoke to me without actually looking at me. His unsmiling face chilled words that should have been warm. I need to thank you for your ministry, Jeff, he whispered hesitantly, apparently studying a fascinating object that hovered three feet above my head. He continued, but then we give all the glory to the Lord, don't we? I don't want you to get proud. I thanked him and so wanted to deliver him of his constricting tie and of his hesitancy to encourage. I wanted him to know that Christian leaders are more likely to succumb to despair than conceit, but he quickly fled, leaving me with a sad realisation, and that is that in some churches there's a famine of encouragement. Faithful, hard-working souls live in the suffocating atmosphere that pervades when appreciation is rare. Working hard in the hope of a final well done that will come when all is said and done, they live shriveled lives in the meantime. Starved of encouraging words that might just spur them on, they hobble on. The assumption is that serving God is reward enough, which is quite wrong, because the God we serve urges us to encourage each other. Encouragement. It transforms, it energises, it empowers, as the glorious Olympics and Paralympics demonstrate. The crowd is often the genuine all-rounder of the games, remarkably making a huge impact to every event. Commentators chatter about the home advantage or the fifth man in the boat that was the crowd. Athletes look wide-eyed and some openly sob as the crowd roar. The deafening choruses of support act like adrenaline, urging spent muscles and tired hearts onto greater exploits. During the UK Olympics, a German journalist said that the London crowd deserved a gold medal. Back then, sprinter Marlon Devonish, in an anti-doping campaign, announced that the crowd was his only drug. So why is the crowd the X factor that helps many to medal glory? More than a wall of noise, surely a crowd bringing encouragement meet the athlete's primal need that we all share, the need to be noticed approved of, because as children we crave the eye and encouraging words of a parent as we wobble on our bites or bring home that chaotic painting or use a toilet successfully. Encouragement is the fuel that can lift our heads through our darker days when the valley is filled with shadows. So go ahead, make someone's day. Again, catch them doing something right. Search out the soul who is usually taken for granted. Thank the ticket collector on the train and smile at the traffic warden. Write a note to that Sunday school teacher who has told the big story to count the squirming six-year-olds for decades. Some of them are in their thirties now, but perhaps few have come back to thank her. To end on the Olympic theme that we've been considering, win a gold medal as an encourager. See you next time. Lucas on Life.